I need you to turn with me to the book of Malachi. Very last book in the Old Testament. Uh, we launched this new series last week out of Malachi called Hard Words for Hard Times. Hard Words for Hard Times. And uh, to, today we're hopefully going to finish out chapter 1. We looked at the first five verses of chapter 1 last week. And we're going to hopefully, uh, hopefully finish out chapter 1 today. Now before we dive into the passage of scripture, I got a question for you. How many of you love to get mail? How many of you love to get mail? Whether it's in, whether it's snail mail, right? I'm not talking about bills. Like how many of you, how many of you love, like if you know your family member is going to send you a card, how many of you love to get, okay, so now everybody's hand is raised, Okay. How many of you, well, like maybe, maybe, it, maybe it's not a piece of snail mail, as I will call it. Maybe it's a text from somebody. And you received a, a really nice text. Or maybe it's an email from somebody. And, and then there's, of course, those little messages uh, that we get from people who always seem to do nothing except for discourage us. You ever get those? And it seems like it's almost the same people every time that are sending those. Well, what about, what about our favorite thing? Bills. What about violations that come? You guys like receiving violations in the mail? Those are never fun. In Florida, uh, we had a, a system that was very rigged. Uh, but we, <laughs> we had a system that took pictures of your license plates if you ran a red light. And you, you could have run that red light, and six weeks down the road, you get a piece of mail that says you owe $186, and they got a nice little pixelated picture of your car uh, on, on the bottom of that sheet of paper. I, that never happened to me, okay? Um, I just never. I'm a rule follower. Um, you know, for the most part, though, for the most part, um, a note or a letter is something that we look forward to reading. And when we get it, we read it with enthusiasm. And how we read that letter and, and the way we receive the letter greatly depends upon our relationship to the writer. Would you guys agree with that? The way you read it and how you receive it greatly depends on the person that wrote it, on your relationship to them. Well, the, the letter here to Malachi is being written from a kind and a loving heavenly father, a gracious dad who cares deeply for his children, a perfect father who knows best. Now, if we forget those things, as we begin to read through these couple of chapters, we will be confused. If we forget those things about God, we will get offended. If we forget those things about God, we will become argumentative. If we forget those things about God, we will get our feelings hurt. But the point is quite simple. This is a loving letter of rebuke, and we must always remember who sent it. We must always remember who sent it. This is not a letter from some friend who doesn't truly understand your circumstances. This is not a letter from a relative who thinks this or that about you. This is not from your child or your coworker or some committee. This is from God himself written for us. 
These, as I said last week, are his last words for nearly 400 years. And now he's about to address some very specific people here in the text. And so leaders in this room, listen up. Now, there's a tendency right now for some of you to think, well, we're off the hook because I'm not a leader. We're off the hook. So, whew, he's not going to talk to me today. Well, I would challenge you as your pastor to change your thinking for just a moment. Change your thinking, let's say, for the next 35 minutes of time with me. Because whether you hold an official title or you have some position in leadership here, we are all leaders in one way or another. Amen, church? If we are children of God, we are not eliminated or removed from the responsibility of obedience and personal application from Scripture every single week. So if you would, look with me at verse number 6. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking to the people. If I am a father, where is my honor? And he says, and if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? There's another question. They're questioning God again. How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised? In verse 8, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your own governor. Will he accept you and show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of us, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that they were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great that the Lord's table, sorry, for my name will be great that the Lord, among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, saying to the Lord of hosts, you bring what, what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you 
now, Lord. And, and this passage of Scripture is, is very heavy, Lord. It's very meaty. There's so many things here that we can learn. And so, God, I'm asking you to pull out the applications that we need for our life here as a body of believers. God, that you would show us certain aspects of our relationship with you and challenge us to honor you differently. God, use these truths today to minister to us. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen and amen. You know, God will always hold his children to a higher standard. And as children of God, we must always remember that people are watching us and they will follow us. Our attitudes regarding truth, our actions regarding truth are the things that affect people in our circles of influence. Do you know our church here exists to impact Ionia with the gospel by people learning the Bible and then living out those biblical truths? That's why we as a church exist, to learn the Bible and to live out those biblical truths. And in that, we have a mission. We have a mission to complete until God calls each and every one of us home. And our mission is to connect people to God in everyday moments of life. In everyday moments of life. You know, the scariest thing for me as a pastor is that people are following me. If I could just, if I could just kind of be a little real uh, with you this morning. I was talking to my wife this last week about this very thought of, of, of how it's scary that people follow me as a pastor. It's haunting on one hand, but very humbling on the other. And oftentimes, I've had conversations with my wife where I have said that I often wish that you as a church had a better pastor. Not because I want people to feel sorry for me but because I'm a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy just as much as the next person is. And I see followers of God not following after truth. And to be 100% honest with you, it's discouraging to me most days that I step off of this platform and I go home and have conversations with my wife and I said they still don't get it. Oftentimes, I'm in my prayer closet asking God, when, when will they get it? And so to be 100% honest with you, it's scary. It's scary that people are looking to me to follow me. Why? Because I'm not perfect, and I never will be. Because I'm a sinner, and to be 100% honest, church, I have probably failed some, if not most of you in this room, one time or another in the last year and a few months that I've been here as your pastor. And so first, church, I felt as I was reading this portion of Scripture, I needed to apologize to you that if there was some way that I've hurt or offended you in any way, shape, or form, please forgive me as a sinful pastor. My heart would never be to hurt any of you. In fact, I go home and most nights I'm in tears because I want God to do something amazing in our lives. 
Not so we can have the coolest church and all the cool lights and all the cool instruments, but because I want God to, to have a faithful people here in Ionia. A group of people that says no matter what, we're going to follow after God even if everybody else abandons. And so as your pastor, church, I want to lead you and lead you well. But I can't do this alone. I can't reach Ionia alone. I can't reach every business. I can't even reach the churches that are going wayward alone in this community. We need each and every person in this room. And everybody has giftings and abilities that work together for the glory of not the well, but the glory of God. And so church, are you ready? I'm going to ask you to put on your spiritual seatbelts with me this morning. Because we're about to get hit with, with God's truth. A challenge for us. Because it starts right here. It starts with, with the believers in this place. Why? Because followers of God must understand that their decisions affect every single person around them. Every decision that we make affects the people around us. And it's important to remember that whatever capacity we are connected to people, we're leading them in some way. You know, followers of God must remember that we lead by example. And so the question that I have for us this morning is what example are you giving? I'm not asking for you to answer out loud this morning. What example are you giving? Where are you leading people today? Do you know the state of Israel when this passage of scripture was written was so much so that they were no longer living the way of righteousness. They weren't following God. The priests and the people were both living a very cynical and sinful and sarcastic and self-centered lifestyle. That's what's going on here. Does it remind you of anything? Our culture right now, maybe? The, the problem was that they had forgotten who God was. And when we forget God, and we, when we no longer honor God, we turn to a life of heinous and insidious sinfulness. So church, I have another question for you this morning. Is your life really honoring God? Is your life really honoring God? You know, it's a yes or no question. A very, very simple question at that. And no matter what your answer is in this place, God knows. That was a scary thought as I was reading through this portion of Scripture that it doesn't matter how I could answer that question to somebody else. God knows because he sees every single thing. And we're living in a day when dishonoring anyone in authority is fashionable. 
Right now, children are being encouraged to disobey their parents. Spouses encouraged to to run out on their spouse. People are encouraged to dishonor leaders. And to be honest with you, many Christians are simply dishonoring God. God is asking in the text, where is my honor? If I am your father, where is my honor? You do not need at all to be acutely discerning in this day to realize that the Lord's name has been profaned in this country and now in our churches. The cultural drift that we're seeing in society is a result of people dismissing the importance and the reality of our need for God. And God started by calling out the priests. The leaders of the church in that day. He started by calling them out. You know, in the Old Testament, everything orbited around the temple. Everything. And in the New Testament, everything orbited around the church. It was the Old Testament priests, and in the New Testament, it was the pastors and the spiritual leaders. And in our case, every single child of God, according to Peter, is a priest. We are a part of the priesthood of God. And so we are in line for this stinging rebuke because judgment begins at the house of God. We're in line. You know, the, the, the people in Malachi's day had despised and profaned the name of the Lord, meaning that they ascribed little worth to God, meaning that they gave his reputation and character and nature no worth at all. That's what profane means. And to despise the Lord means that we think very little of him. Very little. It means that we do not submit means that we don't cherish. It means that we don't esteem or respect or value or follow him. You know, a better title for this passage of scripture in my eyes would be the stains of the altar. Suggesting that people that claim to worship God offer defiled sacrifices to him. You know, people who claim to give God their wealth are cheap and evil is what we see here. And they claim that they work for God and they find it wearisome. And so church, the first thing that we need to look at this morning is how we handle our wealth. How we handle our wealth. You know, God goes straight for the big money issue here in the text. And and anytime money gets brought up in a church, it it turns to like an icebox. It's quiet. It's cold inside the church. And the minute the pastor starts talking about money, people get all sorts of antsy. They get all sorts of of annoyed. But listen, I don't enjoy talking about money in church. I don't. And the truth is, is that money was a major problem in the Old Testament, and it still is now in our day. And so we must address it. The offerings here in Scripture that were being made were subpar, to say the least. They were subpar in the eyes of God. Man, you and I might not like it, but our offering 
to God is a reflection of our love for God. It's a reflection of our love. You can't say that I love you, Lord, and then not give. You can't. Like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is where your heart is. I cannot say, I love you, Lord, and not give. Why? Because giving is an indication of one's heart. It's an indication of one's heart. You can't say, I love my family, and then never show up for them. You can't say, I love my family, and never spend time with them. You can't say, I love my spouse, and not invest in that marriage. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because love is not a feeling. Love is something that we do. It's something that we show. And so when we say we love God, we give everything to him. In fact, if we go back to the the New Testament in the book of Acts, people gave everything up. They sold all of their possessions and they gave it so that other people could have. The people that were without, they gave it all away. They sold their homes. They sold the possessions that they had, the property that they had, and they gave it all to the church. If you want to know what a person loves, look at how they spend their money. Look at how they spend their money. You know, the the times were a bit different in the Bible. You, You brought an offering of what you had. And so if you were a farmer, you would bring in crop or you'd bring in an animal. Imagine that you were the one bringing rotten food and sick animals to God. Imagine it was your turn to bring food for a fellowship. And you're like, honey, the the, the bread and and the meat has turned green and it's growing hair. I mean, imagine, it, it, it kind of makes you chuckle, right? Because our automatic assumption is like, I hope you don't have that kind of food in your house. Like, I hope you've already thrown it away, right? But th- that's what's going on. And, and, it, and you're like, honey, it smells like socks in the summer. Like, imagine, imagine that was you and your spouse is like, it's fine, just bring it. Just bring it to the fellow. All green and hairy and smelly socks. Just bring it all. Bring the whole thing. It's perfectly fine. We'll just give it to God because it's good. We'll give it to God. And you, you bring it in. And, and God was waiting here for you. And you go ahead and you bring that stuff. And God goes, no, take that to your governor and see if he likes it. Call the IRS and tell them that you want to pay your back taxes with the junk that's been in your garage for 15 years. See if they'll take it. That's what God's saying. He's like, don't bring that to me. God called what they were doing evil. He was saying the half-hearted giving was evil. It was smelly. It was a stench unto his nose, and he didn't want anything to do with it. And I, I wonder... I wonder, how is it that we can give God our sinfulness, but we can't give him our silver? How? How how is it that we could offer God our worst thing, our shame and our guilt, and yet we can't give him our best? How can we not be generous and gracious 
in our giving. If we truly are followers of Christ, we should be leading the way and being gracious and generous in everything that we do, not just monetarily, but in the way that we serve and the way that we share the gospel with people and the way that we act and respond to people in our circle. It should be generous. I mean, if you really think about it, God gives us what we have and what we need. Everything came from our dad. Everything. So where's your wealth going? Where's your wealth going? You know, many of God's people have spent their money on things that just end up enslaving them. I've seen it time and time again as a pastor. Instead of investing into the kingdom of God, many people are purchasing things that have no eternal value. Do you know why we invest into the kingdom of God? And so that we're not controlled by one of the very things that God says will simply encapsulate our life, and that's money. So we invest into the kingdom of God to protect ourselves from being enslaved to money. So I guess I have a question for us before we move into the next thing. What does God think of your offering? What does God think of your offering? You know, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to us. God gave us his best. I mean, God called what they were doing evil and polluted. And those are pretty strong words. Pretty strong words. These were the last words of God to the Israelites for nearly 400 years. What you're doing is evil and polluted. And this is what I know, what I've learned from Scripture, what I've learned in my own life, is that whatever we do for God, however we serve Him, whatever we give, the management of our time, and all that we are should be looked at through the lens of, is this my best for God? Is this my best and, and when you come to a place where that's the lens that you begin to look at everything through, it's a game changer in your life. A complete and total game changer. Why? Because, because we begin to give differently. We begin to worship differently. We begin to serve or, or work differently for the Lord, which leads me to our second point. Not just how we handle our finances or our wealth. We must look at how we worship. We must look at how we worship. You know, th th these verses kind of overlap, but go with, go with me back to verse number 9. And it says, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who, don't miss this, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in pure offering. 
For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its fruit, uh, food may be despised. God is drawing attention to how they worship and what they were offering up to God. By the way, our giving is a part of that, but it's not just our giving. Our giving is an act of worship, but now he's addressing the entire act of worship, meaning how do we live our life? What are we doing with our life? And in this case, specifically going to church. Specifically going to church. Do you know that the priests and the people were playing church? They were playing church. The priests were not even making sacrifices unless it had some benefit for themselves at all. They weren't making sacrifices unless it benefited them. You know, you could come to a church building and God may never show up there. And that's a sad reality in our culture. You could show up to a place called a church and God may never, ever show up to meet you there. I don't mean physically, like God's going to come up onto the stage and, and talk, but I mean God's presence may never be felt in some churches that call themselves churches. And the crazy thing about all of it is people in the Bible here were coming to worship and act like it was for God, but he He was displeased with everything that they were doing. In fact, he said there should be someone who shuts the doors on what they were doing. I mean, how can you come to church and God not be there? Like, I I struggle to wrap my head around that very thing. But God was saying to them, I love you, but right now I do not like what you're doing. I don't like it. And the temple in the Bible was the epicenter for everything that God did in that culture. And the temple was the center for worship and teaching. It was the place where God's presence dwelt and his glory was to be seen. Sacrifices for sin were made in the temple. In fact, all of it was a greater foreshadowing of what was to come when our great high priest would come and connect us to God through his own sacrifice. Man, and God is crying out, Stop! Shut it down! It's over! God is saying, I would rather have no worship at all than wrong worship. I would would rather have no worship than wrong worship. You know, when we stop honoring God, everything falls apart. Everything. Our homes fall apart. Our churches fall apart. Our communities fall apart. Our marriages fall apart. Our countries begin to fall apart. And in a word of warning to us here today, a word of warning, when Christians become half-hearted, the people in our circle of influence become quarter-hearted, which leads to children becoming hard-hearted. I'm going to say it again. When Christians become half-hearted, we only give half 
of it to our relationship. The people in our circle of influence will become quarter-hearted. And that leads to children becoming hard-hearted. Years ago in this life, the word conviction would ring from churches. I was in multiple churches growing up, and it was never without fail that at some point in that service, you heard the word conviction in some way, shape, or form. Now, it's almost as if if you use it, you're labeled some kind of legalist or right-wing wacko if you use the word conviction in this culture. And it's sad because what was once conviction is now convenience. When it comes to the things of God, it's no longer about conviction for our culture. It's about convenience. As long as serving God and and worshiping God and, and working for God is convenient, then I'll do it. But the minute that anything else gets in the way, The minute that I deem something more important, church and God get cut. And you want to know what the scariest part about that? The next step from convenience is then consideration. I'll think about going to church. I'll think about giving. I'll think about serving. I'll think about being faithful. Church, follower of God, friends, we need to realize the situation and understand that things cannot continue in Christianity the way that they are without serious repercussions. In fact, I believe right now we are already seeing and feeling the effects of that very thing. Conviction led to to not. I'll, I'll consider it. We're living... in a culture that is completely attempting to eradicate all things that align with truth. And that's a very scary place to be. A very scary place to be because we are outraged when other people's thinking doesn't align with ours. And I don't say much, if anything at all, about politics from the platform. Um, I take a very hard stand against it, actually. I would never step before you and tell you who to vote for. Um, But this is an election year in many, many ways. This is an election year. We're voting on governors and state representatives many of of whom could have an effect on the next presidential election in two and a half years. And the, the last thing that we as a church should do 
is to sit out and not use our voice. The last thing that we should do is not step into a ballot box and cast our votes. That's the very last thing that we should not do. As as a Christian, our voice is not heard by getting on a bullhorn and going to a rally and screaming at the top of our lungs at people and making a fool of ourselves. We know that the Spirit of God gives one self-control. And so if your life is not resembling self-control in that manner, then it is not of God. But what we can do is rally together and go use our voice when we, when we make those calls or who is going to lead us in our politics. Right now, our culture is in such disarray, such chaos. There's so much hatred and divisiveness going on, and it's even bled and crept into the church which is the scariest of all things because the church was supposed to be the one that brought unity to its people under the heading of Jesus Christ. And here we are in in a book of the Bible where the same exact things are going on that are happening right now in our culture. Do you know it was not long before this book right here that parents were murdering their children in worship to the god Molech. They were sacrificing their babies by throwing them over a cliff into fire. And we think our culture is bad. Listen, the Bible tells us it's going to get worse. Just being 100% honest with you. It's going to get worse. And if we don't know where we stand and why we stand where we stand... And if we don't know that those things are are based upon the solid truth of God, we will be pulled in every which direction. Paul tells us to grow up into Christ, who is the head of the church. And in doing so, we will strive to attain to the unity of the faith. So I don't mean to get on a political rant in any way, But there are choices that are coming, church, that will affect these very things. God was not just interested in the wealth of the people. He was not just interested in the worship, but he talked about how they work. He talked about how they work, how they serve him. And so that's the last thing that we're going to cover before we close today, is how we work. Go back with me to verse number 13. It says, but you say what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this is what you bring as your offering. It's like the, the Israelites here were like, oh, brother, you again? I have, to, I have to answer to something else in what I'm doing? Like, I'm bored with serving Jesus. Do I have to? How much longer do I have to keep living the Christian life? I mean, he said that they snorted or they snuffed in some versions of the Bible. You know what that means? It means that they rolled their eyes and heaved a sigh. How many of you ever had teenagers in your home? How many of you teenagers ever rolled their eyes or heaved a sigh at something that you said? That's what's going on here. Like, oh, church again? Oh, Teaching again, Bible study again, singing again, serving 
with those little blessings downstairs. Again, music practice. Again, VBS. Again, man, it's normal and it's natural for people to get tired. Amen, church? It's normal and it's natural to get tired. But serving the Lord, when you do it right, it requires a lot from you. A lot. It takes a toll. And when you get tired, I mean, Paul himself even talked about spending himself or his whole self. I mean, Jesus took naps. All in favor of naps? Jesus took a nap in the boat and he told his disciples to come apart and rest a while. It is normal to get tired. Not everyone can keep the same pace and some people can only handle a little. But no matter how you look at it, life can and will always make you weary. Do you guys agree with me on that? Life can make you weary. And that was not the issue that Jesus was, or that God was addressing here. The issue was that they were weary of following God. It wasn't like, I'm weary because I just worked 12 hours. I'm weary of doing what is good, what is right, is what he's addressing. Man, they were going through the motions they were sick of church. They were half-hearted here in Scripture. And this is the many ways in what I call the second generation syndrome. Second generation syndrome. The first generation came and they sacrificed and they worked hard to rebuild the temple. This generation, they're sick of the whole thing. And that's, that's what we see here in our culture. I was listening to a pastor just recently saying that we are less than two generations from Christianity being extinct here in America. That's a scary thought. Scary. The lack of love and appreciation and respect, and it's all too much to be bothered with. That's what's going on here. That's what we see in our culture. They've become spoiled they become self-centered and selfish. And they were more interested in trying to argue and debate with God than actually serve him. But church, what's the cure? What's, what's the remedy? What do we need? And I, I believe there's something crucial that we have to learn from this very first chapter of this book. Because we in this building are no better than the ones that have, have walked away from churches. We're no better than the ones that are struggling with addictions. We're no better. Our flesh is sitting right here behind us. And all it takes is that. And you're walking a path that you never wanted to walk in the first place. Church, we have, a, we have a great king who is worthy to receive our honor. We have to be reminded that God's name is great. Amen, church? God's name is great. You know, in verse 14, listen to what this, listen to what this says. 
It says, Cursed be to the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. But what does God end this chapter with? What does he end it with? For I am a great king. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You see, when we don't see God for who he really is, we end up acting just like the people here in our text. God is declaring his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And he wants all men everywhere to know that goodness and that greatness. He longs for us to be a part of helping others know what it's like to be a part of making God's name great. And when you and I finally figure it out, when we, when we finally figure out who our great king is, we don't see giving our wealth and our worship and our work as a burden to God. In fact, the reality is, is that we will throw everything that we have into the kingdom of God because it's worth it. Whether you're the one planting the seeds or you're the one watering those seeds or you're the one seeing the harvest come. It does not matter what piece we play, we can rejoice together. Amen, church? We can rejoice together. So I have a, I have a question. How different, how different would your life look if you were truly honoring God? How different would it look if you were truly honoring? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people in here honoring God. This, please do not hear me say that. But maybe there are people in here who are wrestling with that very thing. And in a crowd this size, statistically speaking, there's probably a handful or more of people who are wrestling with that. And so what would it look like? What would your life look like if you were truly honoring God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place, Lord, and as, as we finished up this chapter, this heavy, heavy chapter, and God, I ask that we would spend some time meditating upon these verses, that we would reevaluate our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we, we would have a heart like David that says, search me, O God. And if there's any wicked ways within me, Lord, that you would reveal them to me. God, I pray that we as a, a people would just be faithful. That we would remember how great your name truly is. That it, it would be upon our lips and our actions every moment of every day that we would be a people who brought light into darkness. Grace and, and mercy into places of hatred and discord and disunity. That we would be uh, light bringers, unity bringers, peacemakers. 
God, we, we ask, we humbly ask, Lord, that you would start right here. We want to be a people who submits and surrenders to you, that's obedient to truth. Show us areas that we need to change. Lord, give us, give us wisdom and insight into the lives of the people around us so that we can make the greatest impact with the gospel for your name's sake. And Lord, help us to be a people who learns biblical truth and lives it out. Give us strength to, to make steps of obedience be a part of our lives and that we would honor you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen and amen.